0: We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 12. Um, If you're a guest here, we want to say welcome. My name is Jeremy Phillips. I'm actually pastor for adult ministries here at Rosemont. Uh, Our senior pastor, Adam Camp, is currently with a team serving in South Asia. And uh, So if you don't like the sermon today, make sure you come back and hear him because he's a very gifted communicator. Um, And so hope that each of you will be praying for that team in South Asia. Also, pray for Brent and Kathy Bullington, currently serving in Alaska next week. We're going to commission another family, Wayne and Donna Johnson, who are going to join them there. Uh, We have Valerie Johnson, one of our college students, recent college graduate, serving in Southeast Asia for two months this summer, one of our high school students. Uh, Students, Ashley Main is in Kenya right now. This week we picked up our team from Zambia who was there and they brought back with them uh, Lindsay Foster and her family who were serving in Zambia for six months. So church family, if you see them, welcome them back. And Robert Martin just got back uh, from Brazil. So the Lord's just doing some great things Uh, and and we take seriously the gospel. And uh, I pray today as we talk about the gospel that we would just celebrate that. This week in VBS, we had 14 salvations. 14 salvations. Kids brought from death to life, seeing Jesus as the Messiah. It's it's wonderful. And if you're not plugged in in the ministries here, I pray that you would do that. Well, today we're looking at Mark chapter 12. Um, and Mark chapter 12 is a parable. And I've heard uh, parables oftentimes described as these earthly stories with a heavenly meaning. And 35% of Jesus' teachings were actually in the form of parables. And that's just interesting that that's the way he, he taught people. And Danny Aiken in his commentary on Ma- uh, uh, the Gospel of Mark... Uh, gives us kind of insights. Why did Jesus use uh, parables so often? And here's here's seven uh, characteristics of parables. One, they give us pictures of what the kingdom of God is like. It's this kingdom kernel that kind of bursts forth with meaning. Two, it's designed to be provocative and surprising gets our attention. It makes us respond. Three, it stimulates our thinking and causes us to contemplate their meaning. It's not always easy to understand them, but we have to mull and meditate and understand Scripture and continually think on them and ask the Lord to give us insight. Five, they usually have this one central truth. Six, and this one was interesting to me, they reveal more truth to those who, are re- who have receptive ears and hide truth from others interesting. They're given so that we'll pursue it. And those who don't care will just cast it aside and, oh, it's just another story. You know, cool. Sowers, fields, no problem. But those who want to know God will, will, will think about this and they'll pursue the Lord through those stories. And in seven, they ultimately draw attention to Jesus as the Messiah and calls us to make a personal decision concerning him. So this week as I was studying, I kind of was struck with that, that sixth point, that it reveals more truth to those who have receptive ears, and hides truth from others. Because in Mark chapter 4, when Jesus shares the parable of the sower, the people don't fully understand, and he ends that parable by saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And I kept asking myself, Lord, do I have ears to hear, or am I distracted? Am I pursuing you or am I distracted? Is anyone distracted this morning? You you come in here, and I saw this illustration a couple of years ago, and and I've changed it just a little bit. But a lot of us, internally, we're praising the Lord. We're singing our songs. We're amening. But if we were to see, if people were to see what internally was going on in our hearts, it it would probably look a little bit more like this. Thank you, Jesus. And all these distractions are in front of these, these sins we struggle with. And we sang this song about money and power and beauty. And then we get our baggage and we bring our baggage in. But this is not our baggage. Let's just be honest. This is our baggage. And so we walk into worship, and internally, this is what we look like. And we can't understand, why aren't we hearing from the Lord? Why aren't we hearing His voice? So can we just in this moment, take everything, everything you've brought with you, and just lay it here at the foot of the cross, and just leave it, and say, Lord, give me ears to hear what you would have to say. Surrender it all to him because he can take it away. He can bear this burden. We can't bear this burden. And this was the problem with the Pharisees to whom Jesus is talking, is that they couldn't get past their own self-centeredness. They couldn't get past their own uh, preconceptions about what things were being like. And he spoke to this parable, and, and it wasn't just a judgment parable. He was lovingly wooing them to see the truth, but they rejected it because they were distracted by what was in front of them. And it was the things of this world. And we come into worship, and we're the same way. We can't stand in condemnation to them because we bring our own things here with us. So can we just open in prayer and just take whatever it is. I don't know what it is. I don't know what you're carrying in that bag. I don't know what is waving in front of your face. And can we just lay it at the feet of the cross right now and just say, Lord, give us ears to hear. Let's pray. Father, speak to us. We humble ourselves before you. We pray that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts that are soft and open to receive your truth. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Mark chapter 12, verse 1. I'll read it and then I'm going to give you a little bit of context or what is going on. Mark chapter 1, uh, chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. And when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And he took him and they took uh, and they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent them another, and uh, him they killed. And And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him but feared the people for they perceived that he had told a parable against them. I want to give you a little backdrop to what's going on to help us get understanding. The history of Israel is a history of a people who possess the covenant promise of God but continually over and over reject Him. It's the story of the Garden of Eden where God takes that which is in chaos, that which is unordered, brings it together into a perfect garden, places Adam and Eve there where they have his presence and his provision. And what do they do? They're deceived and reject his goodness. They reject him. And it leads to them being cast out. But it's the story of every one of us ultimately. Because Scripture says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that the wages of sin is death. And there's not one of us in this room who is not guilty of this very same thing. But here's the story God is faithful. See, he promised even in their fall that he would send one who would be born of the seed of the woman, crush the head of Satan, and be bruised in the process. He goes on to tell Abraham that through his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. To one of the kings of Israel, David, he says, "Second Samuel 7, "And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever." So the people of Israel continually reject God's covenant promises. They continually reject him, but he continually pursues them and promises, a deliverer, a Messiah is coming." And this Messiah will establish an eternal kingdom. He will rescue them from their sin, take away the wrath of God that they deserve for rejecting him all those years. And when we read in the New Testament, we see that Jesus is the Messiah. In fact, in Mark, he opens it this way, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then throughout Jesus' ministry, we see that the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them. And Jesus shows that he has power over the physical world by healing those who are sick. He has power over the natural world by calming the storms and the seas. He has power over the spiritual world by uh, releasing or freeing those who are captive to demons. He has power over the heart and that he speaks words that could draw in the rich and the poor, children and adults, the religious and the shamed, and he ultimately exposes the lies of the hypocrites and the lies of Satan. And one of the greatest of his miracles, he shows that he has power over death and he raises Lazarus from the dead. So it's no wonder, as we come to Mark chapter 11, just before Mark chapter 12, and we see Jesus making his way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And now for this Passover celebration, Jews would come from all over the world, descend upon Israel for this special celebration. Thousands, if not millions, are on their way. And they've heard about this one, this one who is Jesus, who, who, who may be the promised Messiah. And we see in John chapter 12, it says that when the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, that's in Bethany, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. They went to Jesus. They heard the testimony of Lazarus. They've heard of his power. They've heard how he conquered death. And they say, surely this is the Messiah. Surely this is the one we have been promised. This is the deliverer. And so it's no wonder as he comes across the Mount of Olives that they begin to celebrate as they see the sight of him riding on a donkey. Because five hundred years, five hundred years prior to this, here's what the prophet Zechariah said in Zechariah nine: "Rejoice, O great, great! Rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughters of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you! Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey." A colt, the foal of a donkey. They had had their hope. Here is the promised one. Here is the Messiah. Here is the one who is going to deliver us. So the people begin to throw their coats down on the ground as a sign of their submission to him. They begin to wave palm branches in the air as a sign of victory, of coming peace, of their joy. And they begin to sing and shout with a loud voice this, Mark chapter 11, verse 9. Hosanna, which means save now or save I pray. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of the kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And they celebrate, but the thing is they didn't understand That he wasn't coming to overthrow Rome, but he was coming to give his life, to suffer shame, to bear their iniquities, and to free them from slavery to sin. He was coming to defeat sin by death on the cross. He was coming to defeat death by his resurrection. And instead of him strolling into the city at this celebration and receiving their praise and overthrowing Rome, he goes straight to the temple and reveals their hypocrisy and how they've turned the very temple of God into a place where they're trying to fill their pockets. They're distracted from everything going on. And in it, they're missing Jesus. And so he overthrows the tables and he cleans the temple. And the, the priests, the leaders are angry. And in Mark eleven eighteen, 18 it says, Ch- The chief priests and the scribes heard it. That is what he had done in the temple. And they were seeking ways to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. They missed Jesus for their own selfishness. But Jesus, he wasn't one to shy away At the religious leader's confrontation with him. And so they ask him about his authority. And he shows that they don't even have a basic understanding of authority and truth. And can't even answer a basic question. And then. He speaks this parable to them. And I believe in this parable. What we are going to see is the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. The son of God. And we're going to see five foundational truths of the good news. Something as we're sharing with people, we can hit these points or make sure we we talk to them about these things. If we've never put our faith in Christ, you can understand the gospel through this story. And here's the five foundational truths of the good news. One, the character of God. Two, the sinfulness of man. Three, the sufficiency of Christ. Four, the necessity of faith. Five, the urgency of eternity. The character of God, the sinfulness of man, the sufficiency of Christ, the necessity of faith, and the urgency of eternity. Foundational truth number one, the character of God. Looking at verse 1 in Mark chapter 12, He began to speak to them a parable. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. And when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. The image of Israel as a vineyard and God as its loving owner was, not, was, a, was a common one for them. They were familiar with this. In fact, if you read in Isaiah chapter 5, there's almost the, identically, the identical same story. It says, here's what Isaiah says, "...let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines." He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out the wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now will inhabitants of Jerusalem, men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done to it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now will you, I will tell you. What I will do to my vineyard? I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. it shall not be pruned or hoed. the briars and the thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain, no uh, rain, no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are its pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold an outcry this picture of the vineyard owner that we see is one who owns everything He's the one who plants the vineyard. He's the one who clears the rocks. He's the one who prepares the soil. He's the one who puts the fence around it. He's the one who digs a pit for the wine press. He's the one who builds the tower. He's the one who makes the contract with the tenants to care for the vineyard. It is an intentional cultivation of the land under his rule. And Mark in his story repeats this and, 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 and. Showing the intentionality of God. And he did this. And he did this. He had given the vineyard everything to produce fruit. I remember um, as when I lived in Southeast Asia. Sometimes you would hear these folk tales. And there was this one time I heard this folk tale about the creation of this place. See where I lived there were between 17 and 18,000 islands in this region. And so the tale went like this, that that God, as he was creating the world, got mud on his hands. And so in order to get rid of it, he picks up his hand and flings it down, and all the dirt goes splattering across, and that's how the 17,000, 18,000 islands became. It was this accidental moment, but this is not the God who created heaven and earth. There's nothing accidental about it. It's the, a picture of the establishment of a vineyard by an owner with loving, caring, considerate cultivation for it to bear fruit. If we think about it, it's the same picture we see in Genesis where God takes that which is in chaos, forms it into a beautiful garden that supplies all the needs Adam and Eve have. A place that they are to cultivate and experience His presence and blessing. But they reject it. And Israel rejected God's provision for them. But we do the same thing. We become prey to this idea where our life is ours. We're the ones who have brought it about. We will do what we want, we do not need Him. We will decide for ourselves what is right and wrong. But the character of God is that he owns everything. Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. This is not just an accident. And you, you are not just an accident. I don't care what anybody tells you. Listen to Psalm 139. For you formed me in my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. If you don't have worth, if you struggle with your identity, can you see that God is the one who gives you life? And you're not an accident. No matter what they say. No matter what lies you hear, no matter what false gospels you hear in this world, that you're not pretty enough, that you're not good enough, that you're not smart enough. God has created you. And if you have a question as to the intentionality of God, go pick up a baby and let it flutter its eyes and open them and your eyes connect to those eyes and you will see beyond happenstance and circumstance and you will see intentionality and the loving creation of a creator. You'll be enveloped in his character to give life. And the amazing thing is he gives us life and and he doesn't reject us. At that moment, he doesn't just annihilate the world and say, be gone with it. In Exodus 34, he says, as he passes by Moses, here's his his character. The Lord, the Lord, a a, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression. He's patient with us like the vineyard owner who sends servant after servant that we reject. And we reject his son, but he sends his son for us. Paul, speaking to the philosophers in Athens in Acts chapter 17, says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hands by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. Skip down to 28. For in him we live and move and have our beings, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring, being then God's offspring. We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold and silver and stone, an image formed by art and imagination. He's not a God we create. He is outside. He is separate. He is unique from us who gives us life. And then Paul says, But the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. By a man whom he has appointed. And this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He is a loving creator who gives us life. Who pursues us through his son. But he is also a judge. And so we will be faced with the question, choose this day whom you will serve. So we see the character of God. Number two, we see the sinfulness of man. Verse two, when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and they beat him and they sent him away empty handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed, he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him, and they killed him. They killed him. The tenants in this parable are the religious leaders of Israel. Jesus is speaking directly to them, and those tenants had agreed upon, had agreed and received the covenant terms. But when the owner came to call them to fruitfulness, they essentially say, "We owe you nothing. We reject you. We reject your servants," and they ultimately reject His Son. One writer says they feel entitlement. To the fruit, even though they owned nothing, it was their work that toiled the land. It was their sweat that watered the ground. It was their ingenuity and power that produced the sunshine, rain, and fertile soil. They were the masters of their own destiny, not the owner of the vineyard. And Jesus goes on to ask them a question. And his question is this. What will the owner of the vineyard do? How would you answer that question hearing the story? What would you do if you were the owner of the vineyard? In Matthew's account of this same parable, he gives us an interesting insight into what is going on. He says in verse, Matthew 21, verse 40, When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants, Jesus asks. They said to him, we will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of their season. They condemn themselves. And in Luke we see that they then say, may it never be. They know the truth of their own sinfulness. I don't believe anyone in here doesn't understand their own shortcoming, their own sinfulness. The problem wasn't a problem of hearing, it was a problem of of understanding. I didn't grow up uh, necessarily going to church. We, My family would have been, uh, as I, when I was a kid, would have been considered CEO Christians. That's kind of, we went to church on Christmas, Easter, and other special occasions. Um, so I didn't really have this understanding of God and Jesus in the Bible. And I remember when I first went, someone gave me this Bible and I just, I wanted to read it because in that book I had This first view of who I was, it revealed to me the truth of who I was. And I remember driving down the road in my truck. I can tell you the exact spot I was at. And this verse comes out of nowhere. The wages of sin is death. And I remember in that moment, it was the first time I understood that I was sinful, that I had rejected the Father. And the next thought that came in my head was, if I was to die at this moment, I don't deserve to be with Him Because I've rejected him, and I fought it month after month after that. Even knowing the truth, I fought it. But God pursued, and he was faithful, and he drew me to himself through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the rest of that verse says, But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. So first, we see the character of God. Two, we see the sinfulness of man. Three, we see the sufficiency of Christ. Verse 6, he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. In the gospel of Mark, Jesus is identified as the beloved son. The beginning says, it is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. At his baptism, the father says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. At his transfiguration, he says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And Jesus here tells of his own death. He wasn't the victim It was intentionally, he gave his life. That's why in John 10, he says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down for my own accord. He willingly gives his life for us to redeem a people for himself. Here in the Gospel of Mark, after the son is killed in the parable, Jesus switches the imagery From that of a vineyard to a building. And the point is that the death of the son, that is the casting, the killing and casting him out, is not the end of the story. Because the one that is rejected, what? Becomes the cornerstone. When I was in Southeast Asia, we built this um, uh, kiln. We we, we made these ceramic pots that uh, were used as water filters for people in the area. And So we had this design and we built this kiln, me and three other, uh, two other Indonesians and myself, and we worked so hard. I mean, it, it was huge and massive, and, and the dome of that kiln was, was kind of this circle, and it was three bricks thick kind of standing long ways. I mean, it was, it was just this thick wall. We wanted it to be insulated. So we finished building this kiln, and we had put a, um, a, a, like a, a form to kind of hold the dome so that it could dry. And we were going to burn that form out, but uh, we decided we would just pull that form out. And so we got in and we started to disassemble this form that was holding this up. And it it wouldn't quite come out. So me and another guy jump inside the kiln and start to take it out from the inside. And in a second, the whole thing collapsed on both of us. Death was that close because the design was wrong. The cornerstone was wrong. And in that moment, I remember praising Jesus. Thank you that you're the cornerstone and my life can't fall apart like that. We see the character of God, the sinfulness of man, the sufficiency of Christ, but the necessity of of faith. Mark 12 verse 10. Have you not read the scripture the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. In Luke's version of this very same parable at this point He he gives us another special detail. He says, but he, that is Jesus, looked directly at them and he said, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The gaze of the Son of God through whom all things are created looks them in the eyes and says, the stone has become the cornerstone. If he looked at you now, is your faith in him or is he rejected and cast out? Is your faith in him they had sung Psalm 118 as he came into the city, saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, blessed is he. They had praised him. Do you know where this, this uh, scripture, this verse comes from? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Psalm 118. They had sung his praise. proclaiming claiming him. Him as the Messiah but in just a few days they would reject Him and cry crucify Him, crucify Him because they didn't understand that He was the cornerstone, the foundation of everything and they didn't trust in Him instead we hear that they turn away. Do you realize they could have repented at that moment and said, Yes, Jesus, you are the Messiah. Our faith is in you. We see this as a judgment story, but it's really a story of grace and mercy. They had the opportunity to repent in that moment. Each of us has the opportunity to repent in that moment knowing the character of God, understanding our sinfulness, understanding the character—I I mean, the sufficiency of Christ, understanding the necessity of faith. For it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith, it is not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no man may boast. So the character of God, the sinfulness of man, the sufficiency of Christ, and the, ne- the necessity of faith, and the urgency of eternity. In Matthew's account, he gives us one more detail. That's essential for us to understand before we leave this place today. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the rebuilders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. And the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. It is a picture of the fate of the man who rejects Christ. It is a matter of eternity, and it is urgent. None of us is guaranteed this next moment. But he is the cornerstone. And this, 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 story of judgment can can become a story of his grace. And he can become the cornerstone where we throw all of this, this baggage, these distractions, these things that weigh us down. We can put it at the foot of his cross and surrender it to him and be built on that cornerstone into something glorious. For we Who have put our faith in Christ. This is a story of celebration. But it's sorrowful celebration. In that there are some who have yet to hear it. Will we share it with them? Maybe you've never put your faith in Christ. Do you understand the scandal of this story? The scandal of this story is not God's judgment. The scandal of this story is that he didn't just wipe us out, that he even allows us an opportunity to accept him and to hear the gospel. If we went and picked up our phones right now and in the news feed we heard this story of these evil and wicked men who came to a man, beat him, and killed his son, only to have that man then embrace them, forgive them, and write them into his will, we would say that's a scandal, but that's the story of the gospel. We've rejected Him and He's adopted us as sons. Will you put your faith in Him this morning? It is the most life transformation thing. I can't tell you, just give your life to Jesus this morning. And if you have, celebrate it and sing songs and let the distractions stay at the cross and and worship Him as the King who will return only this time on a horse in victory. To claim a people for himself for all eternity in the presence of God. Will there be no more tears and shame and sorrow. But he will be the light of our presence. Let's pray. Father we thank you for the power of your word. I pray that we would find our identity in you. And as we sing in this moment. When we sing. Out of an overflow of the gospel, may you draw us to yourself. And may this moment we have ears to hear the truth of your word. And be transformed by you as the cornerstone built up into a people for your kingdom and for your glory. Amen. If you would stand as we sing. If you want to come to the front and pray, please do. If if you want to put your faith in Christ, I would love to talk to you. But if you would just consider his claims this morning to be the cornerstone. Let's sing. Thank you for joining today's sermon. We would love to hear how today's message blessed you.